Uh, tonight's reading is going to be from Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment she was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the snake's reach. Then from his mouth the snake spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged, was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray as we look at this fabulous passage together. Our Father God, we thank you that your word tells us what we cannot work out for ourselves. Thank you that you, God, are able to reveal to us what is beyond our knowledge and beyond our sight. And we pray that you would give us sober minds tonight as we learn about the devil. Father, please, would you uh, free us from the, uh, the foolishness that doesn't take him seriously? Would you free us too from the fear that uh, might lead us to take him too seriously? Help us instead, we pray to grow in our confidence that the lamb who was slain has begun to reign and that there is no power in heaven or earth or hell that can overcome the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no power that can prize those whom he loves from his loving grip. 
Father, we praise you for these things. Amen. Right, let's start with a, a game of odd one out. Um, spot the odd one out. You've, uh, you'll see it up on the screen here, those of you who are in the church building. So, baby in the manger, three wise men, donkey, uh, shepherd, and seven-headed dragon. Uh, what's the odd one out? Anybody? Donkey? Uh, no. <laughs> Although maybe, maybe. I see where you're going. I see where you're going. It's the wise men. All the others were around the manger. The wise men didn't come for quite a while afterwards. It's obvious, if you know your Bibles. Now, I've seen all manner of nativity plays in my time. Uh, One of the more traumatic occasions in my uh, early years as a ministry intern was was doing a a nativity, agreeing to do the nativity service at a, a country farm. Uh, with 200 children and as many live animals. Um, <laughs> it was years of therapy. But there, I've seen all sorts. I've seen kids dressed as bumblebees and Buzz Lightyear, but I have never, ever, ever seen a parent bring a child to a nativity play dressed as a bright red dragon. Which is odd, because Revelation 12 tells us that just as surely as Joseph and Mary and the shepherds were there, there was also a great big dragon Revelation 4 to 11 have given us a behind-the-scenes peek at human history. Revelation 12 takes us behind the scenes at Christmas. Behind the scenes at Christmas. Now we have open out. Uh, Let's play a different game. Uh, Spot the link. See if you can spot the link between these things. Government oppression of churches in North Korea and China. Islamist attacks on Christians in Cameroon, in Pakistan, in Egypt. Churches in Europe giving in to secular culture and failing to hold fast to the Bible's teaching about sex and marriage. And Christians being lukewarm about the hope of heaven because we've got reasonably secure jobs and nice holidays and a good standard of living. What's the link between those things? Well, Revelation 12 tells us that behind every attack that harms the church, behind every restriction that shackles the evangelism of God's people, behind every deception and temptation which compromises our faith, behind all of it is the malevolent, raging evil of the devil. That's the link. Okay, so what? What's the, what's the big thing that we're going to learn tonight? Revelation 12 is going to warn us that you and I are in a war that life is a battle. And on the other side is a very powerful enemy. And he is the embodiment of merciless evil. So you and I need to take things seriously and stop living as if we're at peace in a time of comfort and start living like we're in a battle with an enemy. Look, if you haven't noticed, there is a virus doing the rounds. You know, it's hard to escape. And younger people haven't been taking it very seriously. I was listening to a long thing with a senior government advisor saying, actually, young people just aren't taking it seriously by and large. But the truth is, it's got a mortality rate between 15 and 40 times higher than regular flu and no vaccine. Coronavirus is not a joke, we're starting to find out. All the, oh, why is everybody, oh, okay, this is quite serious now. And so if you are here tonight and you're not taking sensible precautions... 
You're not washing your hands very carefully and regularly. Not self-isolating if you manifest the symptoms. If you're not being extra careful before seeing elderly relatives, then I'd have to conclude, you just haven't realized how serious things are. This isn't a joke. Look, if you know that the devil is real and powerful and obsessively devoted to your destruction and your misery, you've got to live differently. Or else I have to conclude, you just don't really believe it. And Revelation 12 will help us to do that, to take the devil seriously. Now, uh, Revelation 12, as I said, begins with Christmas. But uh, the truth is that past, present and future kind of interweave through the passage in a way which is quite confusing for us. But the point is, John is not seeking to give us a history lesson so we know exactly what happened when. He doesn't care about chronological clarity. He's giving us a theological lesson to empower our endurance as we resist the devil's assaults every day we follow Jesus. And the theological lesson that John is going to give us tonight is a very, very practical one, and it's this. Don't be surprised. Don't be afraid. That's it. That's what we're going to learn. Don't be surprised. Don't be afraid. Just two things. Don't be surprised that following Jesus feels like a battle. I hope you were warned before you put your trust in Jesus. It's quite hard. Don't be surprised it feels like a battle. You've got a sworn enemy, the devil, and he is powerful. He's no joke. But don't be afraid either. God has won. The devil is defeated. And the end has already been determined. It's been settled. In the meantime, the devil, if you like, he is on a leash. He can bark and roar and terrify, but he is on a leash. He's not free to do what he wants. And while he can stir things up and bring all sorts of suffering to God's people while we're on earth, he is utterly impotent when it comes to anything which could touch your eternal soul. He is utterly impotent to bring you any eternal harm. Right, three things to to take us through the passage. Um, But as we go through, this is what we're going to see. Don't be surprised. And don't be afraid. Don't be surprised and don't be afraid. Firstly, the dragon attacked Jesus from the cradle to the cross. So our passage begins with a woman. Verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Well, who is this? Well, surely it's Mary. Verse 2. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. I mean, certainly the baby is undeniably Jesus. Verse 5 describes the baby in language that is uh, uh, quotes Revelation 2, 26 to 27 about Jesus and Psalm 2's prophecy of the Messiah. So verse 5 says, she gave birth to a son, a male son who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So the child is Jesus. But I'm not sure that actually, primarily, it is Mary who's in mind. Look down to verse 17, over the other side of your sheets. Verse 17, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So the offspring of this woman are all who keep God's commands, all Christians, So the woman, I think, is much better taken as she is the community of God's people. 
And if you look in the Old Testament, in places like Isaiah 54, Zion, the city of God, which is the sort of corporate nature of God's people, is described as our mother. Likewise, uh, Isaiah 26 and Hosea, where when God's people are suffering in the Old Testament, they're often referred to as, as being God's people, his corporate people, as being a pregnant woman. It's how they're pictured, how they're visualized. Uh, come back to, to, to verse 1. Uh, the woman is adorned with the, these weird uh, outfits, the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars. Now, back in Genesis 37, 9, when Joseph has his dream of his family bowing down to him, the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars are Jacob and his family, the 12 tribes of Israel being the 12 sons of Jacob. So the woman seems to represent the Old Testament people of God. God's promised savior is born to God's suffering people. And that's what we see. And Mary is then the particular woman within this covenant community who has the enormous privilege of actually physically giving birth to the Messiah. Now, the next thing that happens is just, it is gruesome and grotesque. Verse 3, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. And this is, imagine you taking uh, godchildren, nieces, nephews, whatever, to the zoo and you've timed it for the feeding of the lions. Always an exciting moment for small children. And they, they, they set everything up and the enclosure, the, the gate opens at the end where, where the beasts have been corralled and they, they sort of stalk powerfully out. But instead of uh, a large slab of glistening red meat hanging from the tree at the other end for them to go and get, there's a woman lying on her back, heavily pregnant, crying out, as she's getting ready to give birth at the other end of the enclosure. Uh, and the, the lions are, are sort of stalking backwards and forwards in front of her, drool coming off their jaws, just waiting for the, for the baby to emerge so that they can eat it up. You just think that's just horrific. I mean, that's just, you wouldn't, no horror movie would even go there. And yet, that's exactly what happens here. So who is this awful, awful dragon in verse 3? Well, his blood red symbolizes slaughter. He has seven heads, seven crowns, ten horns, symbols of great power and authority. The answer to his identity is given a little bit further down in verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. The dragon is the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve way back in Genesis 3. He is the devil. He is Satan, the evil spiritual being behind everything that's wicked, everything that's corrupt, and everything that's perverse in our entire universe. And as we read verses 1 to 6, basically what we're seeing is the history of Jesus. All of his earthly life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, all compressed into a couple of verses. This is the spiritual scene. This, if you like, is the satanic reality behind the gospel accounts that we read in the Bible. So this is Herod's slaughter of the baby boys in Bethlehem, recorded in Matthew 2. This is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in Mark 1. 
This is the crowd seeking to throw Jesus off the cliff in Luke 4. This is the spiritual backdrop as Judas the betrayer kisses Jesus and leads the detachment of soldiers to arrest him in John 18. This is what lies behind the sham trial, the brutal beatings, and the gruesome horror of the crucifixion. Behind it all, unseen by human eyes, was the great dragon, desperate to devour the saviour of God's people. Now I wonder what your colleagues at work, if you go into the office tomorrow, what your colleagues at work, your course mates or flatmates will make. If you tell them uh, tomorrow or later tonight, they they say, so what were you looking at at church tonight then? Oh, we were learning about the devil. (laughs) Really? Uh, Did you all dress up with pointy tails? Um, Did he appear? Did you sort of do 666 and things? I mean, I, I just think they'd laugh. That's what we do, isn't it? Our culture just mocks the notion of a devil and looks down on pitifully naive religious types who've, who still swallow that old medieval myth about there being a devil. I mean, how ridiculous. In Rivers Out of Eden, Richard Dawkins uh, famously stated the, the secularist position when he said this, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, No good, nothing but pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. But if you've walked through the silent horror of the genocide museum in Kigali, Rwanda, if you've paid a visit and walked through those gates at Auschwitz, if you've read the reports of the terrible abuse of the grooming gangs in Rotherham and Oxford and elsewhere. Well, the idea that there is a real devil behind the evil in the world is a whole lot less naive and silly than the notion that there's no such thing as evil, it's just a social construct. It is the Bible that deals in hard-nosed, real-world fact, and it's our culture that is comforting itself with fairy tales and myths. The devil is real. He is behind all the evil in the world and he hates and opposes Jesus at every turn in his life. The dragon attacked Jesus from cradle to the cross. Secondly, God's people triumph over the dragon by the blood of the lamb. So the dragon fails to destroy the child in verses one to six and he is himself defeated in verse seven to to nine. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth, and his angels with him. Now, when does this happen? I don't think this is the the moral fall of Satan described in in Isaiah 14 when the the angel becomes Satan. It it seems to be about something else. And you see that when you look at the song. The song basically explains the history. I think this is about Satan losing his right to stand in heaven accusing God's people. That's what's happening. 
Let's see as we look at the, the song which explains things. So 10 to 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Do you see how Satan is described in verse 10? The accuser who accuses day and night. That's what Satan means, the adversary or the accuser. Now, the book of Job in the Old Testament, it begins with a scene which is quite shocking when you think about it. We get so hung up on what's happening with Job's life that we forget just how bizarre the scene at the beginning is. There is this heavenly assembly before God, all the angelic beings, and there amongst them is Satan. Pure evil is there in heaven before God. What's he doing there? He questions the faith of Job. He accuses Job of not really trusting God. And it seems somehow just to be a normal accepted thing that Satan can stand there and accuse God's people in front of God. Uh, You you get something uh, similar in the penultimate book of the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then God showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Verse 3, now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to him, to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. You see, Satan, it seems, has got the right to stand before God's people and accuse them to God's face. That's his great power, is the power of accusation. And while God's people remain sinful, depicted horribly in Zechariah 3, as just graphically covered in filth, while we are sinful, well, then he has every right to stand before God and to point out that we have no right. We do not belong in the presence of God. He has every right to call for your eternal condemnation while you're still a sinner. In other words, if uh, Revelation chapter 12 begins in the nativity stable, these verses now take us to the heavenly courtroom. You have to picture it. There is God Almighty, the Father, sat upon his great throne to judge. Here is the dock, and that's where you and I stand. And there beside us is Satan, the accuser. And he is pointing out our undeniable guilt. And reminding God in his insolent tone that if God is just, there is absolutely no way that he can ignore the wicked, the foul, the immoral, the unpleasant, the unkind, the unloving things that we've done. Before we even begin to talk about the good things we've failed to do, there is no way you can let them in, God. And since the beginning of human history, God has been gathering a people. Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Tamar, Samuel, Ruth, and millions and millions and millions of others. But every single one of them shared something in common. They had no right to be God's people. None has an answer to Satan's accusations. And so while their souls rest in heaven awaiting the resurrection of their bodies on judgment day, Satan can stand there and say, look, when judgment day comes, you cannot let him in. 
We both know what he's done. We both know what she's like. You cannot let them in. You're supposed to be just, God. But Revelation 12 records the moment that something very new and stark happens. Somebody else enters the courtroom at this moment and approaches the throne of God. That's what's happening in verses 7 to 9. And that's someone, we're not told, it's just, it's sort of skated over here. That someone is someone like a lamb who has been slain. And in his bloody scars are the proof that the sins of God's people have been punished in full. Jesus in his death has destroyed Satan's power to accuse God's people forever. And with it goes Satan's right to stand in God's heavenly court. And so he has flung out of heaven forever. And for all his fury and his rage, he's powerless to resist. That's what's going on in verses 7 to 9. Uh, that's why, um, although it's not explained there, verse 11 does tell us what's gone on. You see, Satan's been hurled down, verse 10. Verse 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. His shed blood, his death is the payment in full for sin. And that is how we triumph over Satan's accusations. With Jesus' death, the only genuine power that Satan has over you was gone. Was taken away from him and he was flung out of heaven. Satan's only weapon was taken. And so if you trust in Jesus Christ, then Satan can never again stand between you and God. He can never again stand there pointing out your sin and rightfully demanding your condemnation. His place has been taken by another. Someone else is standing between you and God. One who stands before God, not accusing, but always interceding. His scars proclaiming your sins forgiven. In the words we, many of us read in Romans 8 this week, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So our ultimate victory over this terrifying dragon comes comes simply as we trust in Jesus. He has beaten Satan. He has flung him out of heaven. And so we just keep trusting in him. We keep trusting him even if it costs us our lives, verse 11. But so long as we're trusting in Jesus, Satan is powerless. Don't be surprised that life is hard because there is a devil and he hates you. But don't be afraid. He has no eternal power over you. Thirdly, thirdly, the dragon rages against God's people because he's defeated. Heaven's song celebrates Satan's defeat, but there is a dark note, if you like, at the very end in verse 12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. What that means is then portrayed in verses 13 to 17. When the dragon saw he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, 
where she would be taken care of for time, times, and half a time out of the snake's reach. Then from his mouth, the snake spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with torment. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So the dragon has failed to overcome the sun, and now his fury is directed to the rest of the woman's offspring. In other words, if you trust in Jesus, you. That's encouraging and cheery, isn't it? And actually, these, uh, these verses, they're, they're basically full of language that is Old Testament language for both persecution and protection. The woman is born on eagles' wings, uh, just like the description of God in Deuteronomy 32, rescuing his people from the deadly fate they faced in Egypt as slaves and bearing them on eagles' wings to safety. Uh, she goes to the wilderness, which is both a place of danger and testing in the Bible, but also a place where God's people enjoy his miraculous provision and protection. And she's there, do you see, for time, times, and half a time. Now, we saw last week that in Revelation 11, probably the, with the same period of 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, or time, times, and half a time, as in time being a year, times, two years, half a time, half a year. We saw then that it probably relates to the wilderness wanderings. Uh, that's what it was looking at then. But there is another crucial Old Testament place where this period of time crops up, and that's Daniel and Daniel's prophecies in chapters 7 and 9. And in his visions there, time, times, and half a time is the period of the great tribulation and the brutal persecution of God's people. It was fulfilled in, a, in an earthly, immediate sense in the in the horrific invasion of the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 to 164 BC. It's easy for you to say, Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, no wonder he was a brutal dictator. Can you imagine the stick he got at school with a name like that? But he, uh, he was in a, a really awful, awful time for the Israelites. And you, you got a picture of what it was going to be like when he turned up at the beginning of the invasion and he hated God and God's people. So he turned up with herds of pigs and slaughtered pigs until the temple was ankle deep in pig's blood to defile it. You think, yeah, that's not going to go well at this point. He made keeping the Sabbath or being a priest capital offenses, had people killed for it. There was a, there was a brutal um, suppression of the uprising that inevitably followed and, and years of, of uh, guerrilla warfare before he was got rid of. And ever since that moment in Israelite history, Three and a half years became a byword for a, a limited time of just brutal persecution. Uh, fourthly, finally, the, the water that threatens to engulf God's people, that the, the serpent spews from its mouth in, in verse 15. Uh, throughout the Psalms, uh, flooding waters that overwhelm are an image of God's people being pursued by their enemies. But in all of it, in all of these attacks, in all of this danger, the dragon fails to wipe out God's people. And so, verse 17, he wages war against those he hasn't yet harmed. 
And the dragon still rages today against those who trust in Jesus. His rage stirs up persecution. His rage whispers temptation. His rage confuses with deceptions. His rage lulls with apathy. Whatever it takes to destroy the faith of God's people. Satan's rage, what does it look like? It looks like a Christian village in North Nigeria or Burkina Faso as suddenly out of the bush emerges heavily laden pickup trucks with Boko Haram militants who descend in an orgy of violence, torching churches, shooting, hacking, kidnapping young girls. And the sounds of gunfire and screams and sobbing moans drown out the dragon's roar. Satan's rage looks like a very ordered and happy denominational meeting at a, a church body in Canada or Britain where the synod votes to ignore what the Bible says about sexual sin and instead to encourage and celebrate those things. And the sound of soft, reasonable voices, warm applause and glowing editorials in the secular press drown out the dragon's cackling laughter. Satan's rage looks like a Christian in an office in London mocked relentlessly for inviting friends to a lunchtime Bible talk around the corner. And as they're cowed into silence and just decide to shut up shop and keep their head down, the dragon breathes a sigh of relief. Satan's rage looks like a group of young Christians at a church who convince themselves, look, sexual sin's just not that big a deal. I mean, it's not... We're not perfect, but at least we're not Pharisees, you know. And as they swallow the poisonous lie, it doesn't matter. The dragon smiles. Look, if we thought coronavirus was something to worry about, Revelation 12 tells us we are in a war, a real war, a war in which lives are lost. We have a brutal enemy and he knows no pity. He will not leave you alone because you've had a difficult week. He's not going to go easy on you because you're struggling with depression. He hates all who trust in Jesus. So do not be surprised that the Christian life feels like a battle at times. Don't be surprised when doubts and temptations fill your mind. Don't be surprised when you face just irrational um, hatred, it seems, sometimes for your faith. Don't be surprised where you attempt to speak about Jesus and the pushback is really strong, the mockery, the anger, the indifference. The devil is real and the only defense to his accusations and deceptions is in the blood of the lamb, the message of Jesus Christ crucified. Can I say that is also the only hope for our loved ones too? Unless the people you know and love and care about have never sinned, then they need to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ too. He is the only hope. And that's why we need to keep on speaking of Jesus, even when it costs us, even when we suffer for it. Don't be surprised, but do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You need to see that Satan's rage is not it's not a sign of his strength in this passage. It's a sign of his defeat. He rages because he knows he's lost. Because he knows his time is short. His days are numbered, verse 12. He's been cast down from heaven to earth. 
And the day will soon come when he is cast down from earth into the lake of fire to be destroyed for all eternity. So do not fear. Throughout this passage, the the dragon is, is fearsome, but he's frustrated. For all his terrifying appearance, for all his crowns and his horns, he doesn't ever achieve what he sets out to do in this whole passage. He may be fearsome and furious, but all his efforts are frustrated. He may be a dragon, but if you trust in the lamb, he holds no fear whatsoever. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised the Christian life can be hard. There is a real enemy, the devil. But don't be afraid. Jesus Christ has died. He has risen. And it's him who stands in heaven and who pleads your righteousness. It's him who protects you. And it's him who will bring you home. Don't be afraid. Put your trust in Christ and keep living for him. Let me pray. Our Father God, in one sense, we do see in this passage uh, some, something to be afraid of. Uh, when we hear that there is, there is such a thing as the devil, that he is mighty powerful and pure evil. And we pray that we would not be foolish and naive and ignore the reality of a tempter and accuser, one who stirs up hatred and persecution. But our Father, much more than that, we pray that we would not be afraid, that we would trust that the Lamb who was slain has begun to reign, that the last page of history has already been written, and there is nothing the devil can do to harm the eternal fate of those who trust in Christ. Help us, therefore, not to be afraid, but to serve Christ, to trust Christ, to live for Christ. Amen.